Last week we studied Paul's letter to the Ephesians and the significance of God's grace in saving us from a helpless situation. We saw how grace was not just the forgiveness of our sins, but that the very gift of grace itself, gifting us with union with Christ, new hearts, and the Holy Spirit indwelling us, then produced the fertile ground from which the very fruits God desired would spring forth. Our hearts were as fertile as the concrete parking lot outside around the church, but God, because He is kind and compassionate and abounding in grace, delighted in setting our hearts free and removing the stones from them and making them into a garden primed and ready to be adorned with good fruit. This week, we turn to James. Instead of his audience being those who try to earn their salvation like Paul seemingly are, James seems to be addressing a group that's becoming borderline apathetic in their faith. And as I hope to make abundantly clear, and I hope that I made last week, grace is something that's not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. And often Christians are placed in this kind of stasis out of fear of doing works for earning their salvation. And it seems to them that because salvation comes from grace and not from works, from faith and not from works, then we must not emphasize works too much or we will neglect grace and faith. But the inverse is just as perilous. To neglect works, to neglect sanctification, to neglect growing in holiness so that we more adequately reflect the gospel we proclaim is to also do harm to the gospel we proclaim. And so tonight we turn to James chapter 4 to see how this, as Ephesians 2 says, immeasurable grace of God is the very foundation of our works. So read with me starting in verse 1. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whatever, whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the Scripture says the Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely, but He gives greater grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. As you may have noticed, there are many similarities in this passage to Ephesians 2. However, one major difference is the tense in which James is speaking. If you remember, Paul says you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Paul is addressing the state that the Ephesians were coming from, and consequently, we were saved from when we received God's grace. Here, however, 
James is speaking of a current issue that believers are facing. He asks, what is? Not what was. James is addressing a current issue that the believers are dealing with. Saved people. People who already are children of God. People who already have new hearts. People who already have received the Spirit. And isn't it interesting that these two passages parallel one another? One addresses justification and the other sanctification. Yet even in these believers, James is having to address immense infighting, hatred, envy. They are battling one another. Other Christians who are also children of God, brothers and sisters, guilty of murder in their own hearts because of their hatred for one another. Yet what is the source of all their infighting? Is it that they are justly suffering? No. Is it persecution which they are resisting from those who hate the faith? Or some other noble cause? No. It comes from their own hearts. Their own desires. Their own passions. They see things that they want. Good things which James says God would give if they asked with the right motives. They see these things and instead of love and gratefulness for one another, they are ruled by selfish ambitions and wants. They are like a child who sees another ask their parents for food. And when they see that child get a plate of food, instead of going to the parents and doing the same thing, they go to the other child and try to snatch the plate away from them. And if you were to stop that angry child and ask them why they were mad, they wouldn't answer you. Oh, because I have selfish passions waging war in my heart. They'd say, they have something I want, something I don't, and I want it to be mine. And James points out to his readers, which include us, that we are the exact same way. God distributes his gift in his church as he sees fit, making some preachers, some administrators, some evangelists, some small group leaders. And yet quite often, when we see the blessings, the favor, the recognition, the authority that they are also given, we despise them for it. We think, that was my job, I could do that too. And maybe the same thing happens when you don't get the scholarship you wanted or the job position you applied for, or the professor's attention that you crave. And when you see others get them, your response is to diminish that other person, to talk about how undeserving they are and convince yourself that if all things were fair and they only knew how deserving you were, you would have been the one that got that. Maybe you don't even think you are worthy. Maybe you realize that they truly have worked harder, put in more effort, and they rightly got what they deserve, but you wish it was yours still. Good things, beneficial things, things that you want and do not have. Brothers and sisters, this is the source of war that wages inside a believer from the moment they follow Christ until they die or Christ returns. We want, but do not have. Whether jobs, honor, or even spiritual giftings and fruit. And this is precisely what James seems to be alluding to. By connecting this passage we are reading with James 1.5. When he says you have but you do not, or you don't have because you do not ask, in James 1.5 we're told, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives all to all generously and ungrudgingly. 
and it will be given to him. Perhaps the people that James is writing to are jealous of the wisdom God has given some others and not them. I think it's safe to assume that if there, that there are some that do have, if they do have it, it's because they asked. And James points to those who don't have wisdom and says it's not because God is a Grinch trying to steal your spiritual gifts. It's because you would rather do harm to others to try and gain something by your own efforts than have your loving Father delight in giving you the thing you ask for with right intentions. Perhaps there are some who lacked wisdom. And they had asked since they wanted to be honored like the other members in the church and the other churches around who this letter was written to. This is an example of asking so you may spend it on your own pleasures, seeking gifts from God so that you may exalt yourself instead of the God who has given it to you. Brothers and sisters, God's not double-minded like we are. He will not commit half of himself to sanctifying you and then the other half to just giving you whatever you ask for, even if it aids against the sanctification. If you're a bad golfer, like I am, something that will help lower your score is to use shorter range clubs. Every guy I know, and you guys can probably testify to this, when they go from hitting the balls on the practice range to actually playing with friends, all of a sudden it's like a mind shift, or a mind, like a switch in their mind shifts, and they think, grip it and rip it as hard as I can. And every time it goes poorly. They may be hitting the ball straight as can be when they're on the practice range, but put them in the, a group with other guys, especially if there are guys who are better than them, and it's just downhill from there. So one of the things you can do if you're a bad golfer to help not have that bad effect is to use a shorter club. If you step up to the tee box with a driver and swing as hard as you can and you miss hit the ball, you may wind up across the road, you may wind up in a pond, you may wind up 100 yards off in some woods, but what you're not going to do is wind up, most likely, on the fairway with the next nice shot. But if you go in to choose your club, pick your driver out of the bag, and then decide, put it back, and grab a shorter range club, even when you step up and you hit and do just as bad of a miss hit, you're not going to wind up as far off in the woods. You're not going to wind up off in the lake as far as you were. The chances are you're most likely, even with a bad mistake, just as bad, going to wind up with a nicer, easier shot on the follow-up. If we're asking God for something, even good things, that we are not ready to handle, if our hearts are not yet prepared and purified enough so that they can handle the gift in a way that will aid in our sanctification, that will help us progress towards the goal, God may listen to what we ask for and decide that we would do more harm than good with that good gift if it was ours. As with golf, the more power you have, the greater the consequence of the mishit. For James, the undergirding assumption is that God is a generous, loving Father who delights in giving good gifts that are of benefit to His children. 
He is not overjoyed to withhold things from you. It amazes me how quickly I forget that the path to being more holy always leads me to my Father's house first. I mean, we understand this principle in every other area of life. If we are hungry, we go eat food. If we're thirsty, we ask for water. If we're lonely, we call our friends. And yet, when we need to be like God, we somehow think that the answer is not for us to go to God who desires to make us like Himself. We somehow think that the answer is for us to try to muster up the strength to resemble what we think holiness looks like. In other words, the God who proved His graciousness to you by saving you when you were a plague-infected corpse is the same good and gracious Father who is quick to bless and lavish His grace again and again on His children when they come to Him and ask with pure motives. Yet, we, even when we are saved, repeatedly choose to pursue sinful pleasures. Like verse 4 says, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can be friendly with things that are opposed to God and still close to God Himself. That's adultery. It is taking the affections, the time, the effort, the love that God deserves because of the love He has given us and lavishing it on another. Read verse 4 through 6 with me. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the Scripture says the Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely, but He gives greater grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He warns us that to be friends with the world is to become an enemy of God. Why? Because of the Spirit that He has given us. His Holy Spirit is jealous. He is jealous for our affections, for every bit of our lives. He rightly deserves to receive our hearts, and yet we are adulterers, giving our love to another. He isn't just hoping for something from us. He's not as some describe God, like this ex-boyfriend that's sitting around love struck, just hoping you come back to him. No, he's intensely envious. And these are Christians that he's speaking about, that he's envious of, those who have the Spirit dwelling in them. These are born-again believers that are struggling to this degree, that God is saying are adulterers. How would you handle this? Just put yourself as much as you can into God's shoes in this point. How would you handle being cheated on? Having the love and affection owed to you given to another man or a woman. How would you handle being cheated on and finding out about it? When we are jealous, we tend to lash out, to become irate, to withhold our affections from another. We isolate them from our love. We guilt them for their actions and try to make them feel so bad that they'll never think on cheating again. Whether we stay with them or not, I mean, do we carve your name into their leather seats? Take a Louisville slugger to both headlights, slash their tires? The reality is that 
God recognizes the intense response we have to people who cheat on us. I mean, Proverbs 6.34 says, For a jealous husband, and jealousy enrages a husband, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. And this is how we would expect God to respond to us when we cheat on him. But thanks be to God that he is not as we are. How does God, the Spirit, respond to those who have given their affection and love to sinful pursuits? He gives them even greater grace than they have already received. In response to their lack of Spirit-filled holiness, the Spirit gives Himself to those who are truly His. Don't think of greater in terms of value, but in quantity. What can be certain is that though we prostitute ourselves out to sinful pleasures that only abuse us, the Spirit always welcomes us home when we come to ourselves and humble ourselves before Him. So are you living in sin defiantly right now? Have you experienced the forgiving power of Jesus but find yourself constantly running to some other? Know that until you humble yourself, until you recognize your need for the Savior's continued presence in your life, until you realize that your growth in godliness comes from the same source that your initial conversion did, God will resist you because you are proud. Your heart needs to be reminded of your need for God's grace. But the moment you come back and give up the pursuit of another, the moment that you come back to God's door and ask to be forgiven, you will be received with more grace than you had before. Some of you are being lured and enticed by another right now. Some of you are spending your time and your affections pursuing some sinful pleasure that has seduced you away from God. You know that you are far from home. And whenever you think about coming back to the closeness with God, that other whispers seductively in your ear, He won't take you back. Or think about the pleasure and good times you have with me. It entices you and begs you to stop considering God's ways. Brothers and sisters, those are lies. Your heart was made for the one who never abuses you. Who never abandons you. Who never made you prove yourself to him to earn his love and affection. He is the perfect companion who keeps our hearts in perfect peace when our minds are fixed on Him. He is the tender shepherd who leads us to beautiful, satisfying streams and lush flowing fields. He is the friend who lays down His life for ours. Sin will use you up and dump you like a corpse in the trash. And for those of you who have never decided to follow Christ, this is the only assured future that you have as a disposable body to sin. To use your life serving desires that leave you off worse than you began. But for those of you who are in Christ, you are not helpless. Yes, we are saved by grace alone, but your resume no longer reads dead. You are alive. Your heart is beating You have received grace, and that grace is the fertile soil from which the Spirit will produce fruit. Which is why James immediately starts issuing commands to these believers who are being led away in sin. In verse 7, he says, Therefore, 
Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Humility is the method of sanctification. It is not by accident that His first command is to submit. Submit. That is to take your will and to bring it to God for Him to direct. Is it not a lesson we seem so reluctant to learn that when we try to stand on our own strength, as we often do, we almost always fail? Even logically, it's absurd to think that the Spirit who applied Jesus' work to us and saves us by that would then lead us through the rest of our life in a way that does not constantly reinforce our need of depending on God's grace. We are saved initially by receiving God's grace. We are sanctified by God's grace also. The difference between the two is that the first is a raising of the dead, while the second is the embrace of a loving physician. You, Christian, are not helpless. It's not because you were some great person that Jesus cleaned up a little, and now you've got to do this all on your own straight. You are not helpless because you have received the life-giving and producing grace of God who united Himself with you through His Son, implanted His powerful Spirit within you, and gave you a new beating heart that is increasingly beating in unison with His own. In your sanctification, you can see the triune God at work. You can see the Father setting your path of salvation. You can see the Son accomplishing your salvation through shedding His own blood for your sins. And you can see the Spirit applying the blood of Christ to you. So when James says to submit to God, you submit to the established ways that God has prepared for you to walk in. You submit to the work of Christ, which gives you your place as a child of God. And you submit to the Spirit who constantly applies the cleansing shed blood of Christ to your heart to purify it from the passions that wage war within you. As Spurgeon says, sanctification is a work in us, not a work for us. It is a work in us and there are two agents. Suppose to put it as plainly as we can, there is a garment which needs to be washed. Here is a person to watch it, and there is a bath in which it is to be washed. The person is the Holy Spirit, but the bath is the precious blood of Christ. It is strictly correct to speak of the person as cleansing as being the sanctifier, and it is quite accurate to speak of that which is in the bath, and which makes it clean as being the sanctifier too. Now the Spirit of God, He sanctifies us. He works it effectively, but He sanctifies us through the blood of Christ, through the water which flowed from the blood and from the blood of Christ's side. It is victory through submission. Sanctification through humiliation. Sanctification is not a matter of you becoming greater, but of your Savior's work 
within you, ever increasing in its potency. It isn't ironic that the great isn't it ironic that the greatest men of the faith have been those who really didn't seek to be known as great. Paul, who repeatedly endured hardships for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. Peter, who had to publicly endure rebuke from Paul for compromising the gospel, who was called Satan by Jesus, and yet recognized the truth in their words and received God's grace, or the countless missionaries who no one remembers, who have gone, died, and been buried in foreign soils. Great men and women who did not seek to exalt themselves, but counted everything as a loss for the sake of being found in Christ. Did they possess incredible natural skills? None that they did not receive from their loving Father. Great gifts would have amounted to nothing if not used by those who considered it an honor to use them for God. Every breath, every ability, every opportunity was divinely ordained by God through purifying them of their own selfish ambition so that they would be capable of doing great things while still drawing honor to Him and not themselves. Great men and women were those who repeatedly submitted their lives to the washing of the Spirit in the blood of Christ. They went away from God in some way and came back home to God and He washed them clean. They went away, struggled with some sin that they thought they had overcome, only to come back to our brother who reminded them that he died to purify them and set them free. They went away and were intoxicated with some other affair, but came desperately back to the Spirit who rained down the blood of Jesus Christ and made them white as snow. And isn't this the principle that we see when Jesus washes his disciples' feet? He tells them, you're washed already. I don't need to cleanse you wholly, but I do need to wash your feet. That the tender hands of the Savior, who after his people have been walking in this world and having the mud and the grime cling to their feet, brings them back, takes them to a room, puts on an apron, and gets down and washes his disciples' feet. What is our weapon against Satan and sin in this world is if it's not a heart that wants to run home to a father who loves us. Satan does not flee like we're told in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Satan does not flee because he fears our strong determined will. He doesn't run away from you because you quote some scripture in a strong defiant voice. He flees from you as you flee into the presence of God. As a child of God, you have access to God wherever you want. So draw near to Him. It is not problematic to say, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Primarily because Scripture says it. But also because you are His child, whom He has saved for that very purpose. Your heart is now alive and beating with His own. His grace is producing in you the works which adorn new creatures 
He has promised to cause us to walk in His ways, and He does so through His grace, which is given to us by the Spirit applying the blood of Christ to our life. But we are double-minded, as James says. An ever-growing portion of our heart is beating to the glory of God, while a constantly depleting part still craves the things of this world. Which is why James says to be miserable and to mourn and to weep. We are not fully what we need to be. Christians feel in their heart being torn in two different directions. And it is grievous and a distorted reality that ought not be the case. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. Starting in verse 21, so I discovered this law that when I want to do, when what I want to do is good, evil is present within me. For my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the reality of Christians. We are abominations saved by grace. One day we will serve God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we long for that day. And while that day has not come, we mourn and we grieve. And we may be miserable, but we are not without hope. Our hope is in returning again and again to the grace that saves us. To ask the Father for good things so that we may be nearer to Him. Are you caught in sin? Run to Him and plead with Him to set you free. Do you lack the desire to run to Him? Then run to Him and tell you Him you'd like the desire to run to Him. Ask Him for His grace that your heart will desire to run to Him. Submit yourself to God and humble yourself with this new life He's given you. Draw near to Him. Abandon any hope or thought of being as great or of having your name praised and exalted and let God do with you what He wills. Will you pers- your pursuit of God be ridiculed by those who say it's a fantasy? Yes. Will people think that the Bible is dated and irrelevant? Yes. Will others think that you are a buzzkill for your choices in discipleship and trying to pursue holiness? Most definitely. But here's what humility involves. It involves submitting of our plans to God. You have to remember that we're double-minded and deceived in many ways still. God is not. He does not give you instructions with a good intention, but poor planning and a bad outcome. He always succeeds. So in your pursuit of sanctification, first pray and ask for wisdom so that you may love God more. He will delight in answering this request. Second, entrust yourself to God's Word so that the misconceptions about who God is and who you are will be confronted by His Word. And you may have them purged from your mind. Third, place yourself under those who God has gifted in preaching and teaching and discipleship. These are difficult things to understand about following Christ. Some are difficult 
because we are learning to commune with a divine nature, with a divine God. Others are difficult because we still are deceived by certain lies. And we're struggling with how to reconcile all that we have been taught up until that point with this new faith that we're learning. You need others to help you gain, to be able to confront those lies and help show you how they don't hold true. You also need others to help give you experiential knowledge to model the faith for you so that you can catch the faith, so to say, that they're displaying in front of you. But we still struggle with sin. And as Christians, when we struggle with sin, often we feel immense guilt. We doubt our salvation. How do we look at a Christian struggling with sin? It's obvious that that's who James is writing to in this passage, but how do we reconcile those things? Are you constantly struggling with sin? Then there's a couple possibilities. It is possible that you're not a Christian. But let me remove a bad metric for judging whether or not you or someone else you know is truly saved. One of the worst ways that you can judge whether or not you or someone else is a Christian is by how grievous the sins are that they have committed. Many Christians have done things that they never thought they would do. And many of those Christians were highly revered by all the people around them who knew them and didn't see it coming. The outward manifestations of sin are not always the best indicators of a person's heart condition. If you want proof, just read the Bible. From cover to cover, there are men and women who we are told are righteous, God-fearing, men after God's own heart, who are priests, kings, and even disciples of the Lord Jesus, who are marked not by an absence of grievous sin, but by hearts who grieve their sin and its offense to God. The greatest testament to whether or not you are a true Christian is whether or not your heart delights in God and His ways and desires to be near Him. Do you rise in the morning with the desire to run to Him, to dine with Him, to walk with Him in the cool of the day, to hear His sweet voice sing melodies of His salvation over you, And does it feel like a twisting and a ripping on the inside when you live in sin that prevents that from being the case? Do you find your heart mourning the distance in your relationship such that there are times you try to convince yourself that your sins are really not that offensive only to have a sermon remind you of the closeness you've walked with God and it wrecks you? Do you feel like your life revolves faster than a fidget spinner between sinning, justifying your sin, being grieved over your sin, crying out for mercy, receiving His grace, and then being lured away again? Does your heart resonate with Paul in Romans when he cries out, what a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Know that your mourning will be turned to laughter. Your grief over your separation from your Father is evidence of the Spirit intertwining the heart of Christ with your own. And as this work of the Spirit, and this work of the Spirit where He causes our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father, is why I can say with certainty that if your heart is miserable or elated based on how close you are to your gracious Father, 
You are truly his child, for no servant of Satan desires to be close to a holy God. And if your heart is not drawn towards God himself, it may be that your heart has not been joined with him. And you may say, Dylan, how can you say that with such certainty? If you stood in the middle of a raging California wildfire and said, I am not burned, I would tell you you're a liar. If you were on a little raft in the middle of a hurricane and said, I'm not drenched, I would tell you you were delusional. If you went into the middle of a raging river and said, I'm not being carried along, I would tell you you are a fool and a poor deceived soul. So how can you say to me, My soul has been united with the king of the universe, the creator of all things, the author and the perfecter of salvation, and yet I remain unchanged. I think that it's any less absurd than the other three. Not only that, but you call God a liar, delusional, and a fool. Since he said in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So to say you are a Christian and yet your heart is not moved towards God, you force me to either say that you are a liar, delusional, and a fool, or that God is. And I will not say so of God. And if you are someone, and if you are someone who follows religious standards to a T, who looks around and believes that you stand above most others that you know, and who sees your sin as tiny and insignificant compared to others, and your achievements, your sanctification, really leads you to pride, that is not sanctification from God. For your fruit, if it truly is a fruit in accordance with the child of God, and not the Pharisees, comes from grace. comes from you receiving something that was otherworldly to you. So I bring nothing new or novel to this conversation tonight in terms of how we grow in holiness. By going to God in confession and prayer. By submitting our hearts to Him and asking for grace and mercy. By letting His Word have the right to teach us how to think about Him and ourselves and others by submitting to His work in others' lives and producing those who are equipped to teach us and guide us and shape us. I do hope that I've helped you see that prayer, confession, studying God's Word, being in a church where God has provided teachers of His Word, these are, not, these are all means through which God meets us and gives us grace to sanctify us. We do not use them for the sake of achieving our salvation, but we run to them and submit to them and submit ourselves to the God who delights in giving grace to those who ask. Sanctification spirals around to more and more awareness of your sin. 
It's like walking up to the peak of a mountain. As you follow the trail around and around, as you go up and up the mountain, you begin to see more and more the horizon. At times when you're on the east face, you can see out to the east, but you can't to the west. At other times, you see things that you had saw before and forgotten, but not other things. But nevertheless, you constantly are moving up this peak. Honestly, God convinced me of this a couple of months ago. One of the blessings of a faulty memory is that we don't remember all of our sins. But finally, higher you go up, and the more your view expands. And this is sanctification. And you're drawing near to God by walking along the path He has set. You see more of your sin. You begin to cry out, Woe is me, for I am exceedingly sinful. To which God replies, I am exceedingly gracious. Your mass of sins declares my immeasurable graces to all of creation. Angels sing out of my benevolence and gracious character. Demons scream in protest and call and demand that I send you to their hell. And yet my son declares it is finished. I have drank every last drop of their punishment and there is no condemnation because they are in me. So when God, and so God then sanctifies us. He makes us more like Christ and we walk up his holy mountain as we draw nearer to him. We ascend out of the dark depths which we swam in sin muck. And we rise above the clouds and see His glorious grace. And we are awakened to the vast horizon of our sin. And yet the darkness does not overcome the light. The more of our sin we see, the nearer we are to God. Do you want to see more of God's love and kindness to you? Then it's necessary that your eyes have to be open to the depths of your sin that you hear and be grieved by the awakening to this sickness. It is necessary that God show you the muck that's still clinging to you and weighing you down. And it's necessary that your progress in holiness reinforces the gospel of grace that saved you by constantly fixing your eyes on God's character and not your own strength. You are to be made a trophy of His grace. Situated on his mantle, earned by the sweat and blood of his own son. So as you ascend that mountain and mourn your sin and grow in sanctification and you're grieved by the vastness of your sin, you will be comforted by God himself. For he is your father who purifies those who are humble themselves he is the God who has compassion on those who are lowly. He is the God who exalts the humble, who lifts up the downcast, who displays the glory of His grace to those who see their sinfulness and mourn it. And step by step, as you trod up that mountain and you're overwhelmed by some new horizon of sin, you see, sin that you see, He will again speak tenderly to you and call you to remember His grace and love for you. He will again remember the sacrifice of His Son on your behalf. He will again lift you up and so will be the rest of your life until that day when this quagmire ceases and your soul is lifted into the presence of the Father. Until you find a home in a city whose light is God Himself in a city without darkness or shadow. 
until you are lifted off of the peak of the mountain into the heavens. And there, there you will no longer need to see your sin, for you will be standing face to face with the risen Son of God. There you will see God of this creation without any separation. There your thoughts, your affections, everything in you will beat in harmony with His heart as you declare His wonders and glories. And there you will no longer need to be sanctified. For every war in your own heart, every passion that wages war within you will be decisively ended by God's rule in every corner of your own heart. And so we fix our hearts on God, which necessitates that we learn to see and hate those parts of it that reject Him. And in response, God fixes Himself in our hearts as we draw near to Him. We draw near to Him in humility, in need. He draws near to us with bliss and exaltation. And so we cling to His feet as He makes our feet beautiful, as we get to go and be the bearers of this message to those who are still in darkness. That there is a God who saves by grace, who sanctifies us by grace. That the chains of this world are torn away for those who put their faith in Christ. So let's pray. Father, how can we ever conceivably ever repay you for what you've done for us. You didn't just give us partially what you could have. Father, you have decided to give us everything that you can give us. You have sent your son. You have made us heirs. You have promised us your kingdom that, Father, we will rule with you. We go from being enemy foot soldiers of Satan's army, Father, to be rulers in your kingdom. All because you are a God of grace. You are not a God who screams, come to me and prove your worth. But you are a God who says, I will come to you. I will declare your worth. I will show you the worth that you were intended to be as you walked with me and were united with me. Father, you are the God who decides who we are. Father, you are the God who truly knows who we are and what our hearts desire. So help us to take every area of our hearts where we are struggling, where we are rebellious. And Father, take them and submit them to you. Father, that you are good. I pray all this by your grace. Amen.